if you have a Bible, I would ask you tonight to open it to three places. I want to share with you a couple of scriptures uh, before we get into Deuteronomy. One of those scriptures is just kind of a reminder to us of why we're doing this. And then the other one is an introduction into our study, uh, and then we'll get into Deuteronomy. So open up to Acts chapter 19 tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and then Deuteronomy chapter 18. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand, and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so you can follow along tonight in our Bible study. Now, the reason I'm passing along this first verse to you, which really has nothing to do with Deuteronomy, but for me, as I was reading through the book of Acts for myself, and I stumbled upon these two verses, it was an excellent reminder to me of what this is all about. And I thought, I'm going to pass this reminder along to the church as well. So, if you're there in Acts chapter 19, let me just read to you from verse Nine And the scene is the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. He hadn't been there long at this point. He was there for a couple of weeks. He faced some opposition, and it says in verse 9, it says, But when divers, or, or various of them, were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he, that is Paul, departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily... In the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. This is the first time in the Bible that we read of a church building being employed or a building being used for the gathering of the saints and with the intent and the purpose of Paul teaching them the word of God. And it tells us that the result of it was that the whole city of Ephesus, in the space of two years' time, heard the word of the Lord. And the thing that struck me and that I will pass along to you is that it wasn't Paul that personally reached all of the citizens of that city but rather it was Paul's audience that was coming out and hearing the word of the Lord, see? And so Paul sharing the word with the disciples in the city of Ephesus resulted in those disciples then sharing the word with the people in their sphere of influence, their workplaces, their neighbors, their, you know, recreation. And as they shared the things that they learned sitting under Paul's teaching, it caused the word of the Lord to permeate the entire city in a very relatively short period of time. And so just a reminder to us is that God's doing something in our lives. This isn't just an intellectual exercise or a time to come out and learn facts and have our intellect tickled, you know. But it's a time to let the word of God affect our lives and equip us to then carry the word out to those that we are in contact with day by day. And the effect of it will be huge upon our city if we allow it to happen. So just a reminder, it was good for me. It was beneficial. I pass it on to you. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, by way of introduction to our, our study tonight in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul in this passage is seeking to describe and explain to the Corinthian Christians the exceeding glory of the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant. That's his theme. That's what he's talking about. That the new covenant, the new testament that you and I enjoy superabounds over the old covenant that we are studying back in Deuteronomy. And this is what Paul says in light of that. So look with me, chapter 3, look in verse 13. He says, and not as, I'm sorry, look at verse 12. He says, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel 
could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, Paul says, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. And so here's what Paul is saying about the very scripture that we're studying back in Deuteronomy. He's saying this. He's saying that when they heard the things that Moses were saying, they did not understand what they were hearing. That they didn't even understand what Moses was saying. Paul is also saying that even to the present day, they do not understand the things that they're hearing when Moses is read. And essentially, his conclusion is that they cannot understand. So they didn't understand Deuteronomy, the Jews. They still don't understand Deuteronomy, the Jews. And they cannot understand Deuteronomy. And here's the reason why. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, if they didn't understand it, then how do you expect us to get it? I do expect us to get it. And here's why. Because what Paul is getting at is this is that they did not have something that we do. They didn't have the key that is required to unlock the things that Moses said. They did not have it, they do not have it, and therefore they cannot understand the things that Moses wrote. But we do. What's the key? Notice verse 16. He says, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil, that which blinds them, that which keeps them from understanding. When they turn to the Lord, the veil will be taken away. In other words, Jesus is the key that unlocks the veil that allows a man or a woman to understand the things that Moses said. And so therefore, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) when a person comes to Jesus Christ, they have the necessary equipping to understand and apply the things that Moses wrote, hence the things that we're studying in Deuteronomy. Now, you say, okay, we have Jesus, therefore we can understand the things that Moses wrote, but why do we care? Why do we want to read and understand the things that Moses wrote? What benefit is there in doing that? He answers the question in the closing verse of of the chapter, verse 18. He says this. He says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass. That means with no veil, we're looking as though we're looking in a mirror, crystal clear. The glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And here's the point. Is that by using the key, which is Christ, in us, to understand the things that Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy, the result of that is that we are going to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the motivation. That's the reality. That's why it's profitable for us to study. I know that some of the things that we're looking at are somewhat tedious. I know that some of it seems somewhat irrelevant, but listen, what the Bible is telling us is that it's not. Because we have what is necessary to understand what those things mean. And that in applying these principles and precepts that we're learning in Deuteronomy to our lives, we are going to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of all of what we're doing, amen? And so we have what we need. There's no reason why any of us cannot understand the deepest meaning of what God intended when he put these scriptures here for us. So with that, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we're going to go through two chapters tonight, Lord willing, instead of three, and they're relatively short chapters. So it's kind of like going through one long chapter, you know. So hopefully we finish on time, but no promises. So Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I, I, in my heading for my notes, I put as a title for the theme of this chapter, I put the priests, the prophets, and the coming prince. 
because that's what the chapter's all about. And so we begin in the first eight verses here, uh, and Moses writes to us about the priests, the Levites. And he says this. He says, the priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance as he has said unto them. And this shall be the priest's due or the priest's portion from the people. From them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be ox or sheep. And they shall give unto the priest (coughs) the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the maw or the stomach. The first fruit also of thy corn, of thy wine, and of thine oil. And the first of the fleece of thy sheep thou shalt give him. For the Lord thy God hath chosen him out of all thy tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. And if a Levite come from any of thy gates out of all Israel where he sojourned, and come with all the desire of his mind unto the place which the Lord shall choose, that is Jerusalem. Then he shall minister in the name of the Lord his God, as all his brethren, the Levites, do, which stand there before the Lord. And they shall have like portions to eat besides that which cometh from the sale of his patrimony. Basically saying in those, those last couple of verses there that if one of the local Levites that is in one of your cities up in the the outskirts of Israel, has the desire to go and serve as a priest in Jerusalem at the temple, that he's allowed to do that and he's to be included. He's not to be, uh, you know, forsaken or not provided for, but if that's his desire to, to, to serve in the temple, then he's to be allowed to do that. But essentially what Paul is, I'm sorry, what Moses is reminding us here in this section is that the support or the livelihood of the priests was to come from the offerings of the people. And this isn't something that he's saying for the first time. He's repeating it, but he's saying it under the inspiration of the Spirit by way of reminder. There's a couple of things for us to consider quickly and, and, and just ponder that are worthy of mention here in this section. The first one is this, is that it wasn't the offerings of the people that were supporting the priests. In other words, the people were not the ones that were supporting the priests. The Lord was the one that was supporting the priests. In other words, the offerings that were brought from the people were brought to the Lord. And the Lord chose that part of his inheritance or a part of his, you know, uh, you know, offering that he received was then going to be used to support the priests. So, in other words, the priests were not working for the people. The priests were serving the Lord. And the people were not giving to the ministers. The people were giving to the Lord. And that's an important principle to to, to understand, even for us in the New Testament. Because even in the New Testament, God has ordained that those that serve in the ministry that are called by him to do so are to be supported by the ministry. But it isn't the people that pay the salary of those that are called into that capacity. It's the Lord that has ordained that of his portion, they're to be supported. And what this does is it does two things. It makes both the minister and the giver accountable to God and not to one another. And that's important. See, because from the standpoint of ministry for the minister, we have to do things, we're called upon to do things, and to live a lifestyle that we would never live if we had to do it for people. (laughs) And at the same time, people are called to give to the Lord that would never give if their motivation for giving was that they were giving it to the minister of God. But see, when I'm doing what I'm doing for the Lord and not for people, then I'm doing it as unto the Lord. And I'm doing it in the sight of the Lord. And when you're giving to the Lord as unto the Lord and not because of what's happening, you know, on the human plane, then you're able to give to God joyfully because you're giving to God and not giving to man. 
And so God's saying is that this is my choice to do it this way, that they might be undistracted. You say, okay, well, it's also worthy of asking then, how much did they get? How, how, what kind of lifestyle should someone that serves God live? And here's the principle, and we see it right here in the passage. Here's the principle, is that someone who serves in the capacity like these Levites did, or someone who serves the Lord, should be modestly content. Notice that it was a measured portion. He said he's to get the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the stomach, which were nice cuts of meat, but it was measured and it was modest. And here's the idea is that someone who is serving in the ministry should not be starved to the point where they're distracted from their duties because they have to seek other means and ways to support themselves and to support their families. But at the same time, neither should they be enriched so that they become covetous and they become a stumbling block to those that look on on the outside and say, that person is getting fat off the ministry. They're just living large in the name of the Lord. And so the principle is that it's a measured thing. They should be modestly content, not starved, not enriched. That's what Paul taught in the New Testament. It's the principle that we see spoken here by Moses. And so he reminds them concerning the priests. Now, as we get into verse nine, he breaks into this realm of the false prophetic aspects of the new age ideas what we learn from this section here between verses 9 and 14 is that new age ideas and concepts are nothing but a repackaged form of an old lie that they're not new at all notice verse 9 it says when you are come into the land which the lord thy god giveth thee Thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. What Moses is talking about in this reference of passing through the fire is what was known as the worship of the false god whose name was Molech. It was the god or goddess of fertility in the days of antiquity. And the way that Molech would be worshipped by the Canaanite cultures and the idolatrous peoples of that time and of those nations is that they would take these iron gods that had outstretched arms and they would put them on a bed of hot coals and heat them to molten temperature. And then they would offer their firstborn son or daughter on the arms of Molech, burning them literally alive in, in the presence of their God and in their idolatrous worship, with the motivation then of having an enhanced or blessed family life. That by offering their best to their God Molech, they would then be receiving, on the receiving end, they would have an abundance of children which was profitable and beneficial and desired in those days now you say that is sick why would god even have to tell his people not to do that they did it <laughs> the time came in their downfall and in their backsliding that they actually did the thing offering their children in this thing it was sick but here's the thing that's even sicker is that the spirit of Molech is alive even today. Only it's repackaged under the title or the guise of what is known as a pro-choice position. You see, in the name of having a, a more prospered family, in the name of not interrupting the family plans that we have for the future, we're, gonna just, we're just going to offer the unborn child into oblivion and will pretend it's not alive that it isn't a soul that it doesn't matter that it, it, it's just matter that it doesn't matter it's just matter and so we're just going to offer this thing and the spirit of that even lives on even to this day and it even exists within the church but god says you shall not do according to that practice it's an abomination you're not to let your children pass through the fire and then he goes on and he says, or that uses divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. 
Basically, he's saying to them that you are not to go and talk to psychics, astrologers, hypnotists, magicians, spiritists, or necromancers, or those that communicate with the dead and call up the spirits of the deceased. Is that it is not fitting for the child of God to be involved with these occultic and new age-ish things. Though they be packaged in ways that are innocent or that aren't attached to the name of any false god necessarily, God says you're not to do it. You're not to look at the stars. You're not to study biorhythms. You're not to go to a psychic. You're not to look at your horoscope in the paper every day and try to glean direction for your life based on the things that the stars are saying in their courses and in their patterns. God says in his word concerning this, verse 12, is that for all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations which thou shalt possess hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so you say well why not i mean if there is something to this and there's something to be learned or some you know insight to be gained for my life then what's the harm in looking at those things or talking to those people or consulting that type of 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 spirit what's the problem here's the problem there's two problems with it number one is that there is a demonic realm attached to those things people say well it's real Yeah, I know it's real. The Bible says it's real. But the Bible also tells us the spirit that's behind those things. And it's a spirit of darkness. It's the spirit of Satan. And the Bible tells us that we are children of light. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, What fellowship does light have with darkness? Or what concord does Christ have with Belial or with the devil? And so we're not called to operate and integrate our lives in that which is demonic in that which is dark even if we say well i serve the true and the living god we're to be separate from those things light doesn't have fellowship with darkness furthermore if it's a demonic realm that's making those manifestations and those things happen well the bible tells us clearly that satan is the father of lies and so if you gain insight for your life or you're given counsel from a deceased relative or a psychic tells you something about your future, then how do you know that what you're hearing is not a lie or something of the enemy that you might not know it's a lie for five or ten years, but then you're in a trap and you can't get out of it? And God says, I'll never lie to you. I give you the word of truth, see? So we're not to do that because light doesn't have fellowship with darkness. And here's the other reason why. Here it is, ready? Because you're a child of God. And as a child of God, God is able to communicate with you everything that you need to know about your todays and your tomorrows. And if you need to know something about your future, your father is going to let you know the things that you need to know about your future. And if he doesn't let you know, it's because you don't need to know or because it will be harmful for you to know or because you'll never figure it out and you'll just say, yeah, right, God. The Bible says that he withholds no good thing from those that love him. And so we keep our heart right before him, and the Bible says that he's going to be faithful to direct our path. Psalm 118, the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. I know the plans that I have towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. He knows what he's doing in your life. And so you don't need to try to get insight into what's going on through outside sources. God is offended by that. And he says that they're not to do it. Well, now he goes on in verse 15, and he gives to them the great prophecy concerning the coming prince or the coming messiah. He says, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken. When Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, he asked them the question, he said, who do men say that I am? 
And each one of them began to give their answer. One said, well, some say you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And some say you're John the Baptist. And some say you're Elijah because of the miracles that you do and the manifestations and the power that you have. And then one of them said, some say you're that prophet. When they said that, they were referring to this passage right here. In fact, oftentimes throughout the ministry of Jesus, we hear people using that phrase as they observed and heard the things that Jesus said. They, they would say as he would feed the multitudes, they would say, surely this is the prophet that was spoken of by Moses. This is the prophet that, that the, the scriptures has foretold. And it's a clear reference, a clear prophecy concerning the fact that he would be the Messiah. So this is a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah that God would be sending into the world. And Moses saying that the Lord your God is going to raise up a prophet and he's going to be like unto me. And that's how you're going to recognize him. It's basically an indication of this is what you're to be looking for. And so what are they to be looking for? What does he mean when he says these things? Well, first of all, he will be a Jew. The Messiah will be of thy brethren, he says right there in verse 15. By the way, that's why I believe that the Antichrist, when he comes, will be of Jewish descent. Because the Jews will never recognize or accept someone as their Messiah that is not a Jew. It's, it's as clear as day, even to them, as they were, are looking for their Messiah. They searched the scriptures concerning Christ and got it wrong. But they will not accept someone who's not a Jew. They will know that. But he will be a Jew. And we know, of course, that Jesus was a Jew. Well, what else will Jesus be? What will the Messiah be? Well, he will also be a mediator. See, Moses was a mediator or a priest, if you would. Someone who stood before God on behalf of the people and someone who stood before the people on behalf of God. That's what Moses describes in the next few verses. Look at verse 16. He says, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Now you remember the story when God spoke from Mount Sinai. He himself, God from heaven, spoke the Ten Commandments to the people. And the people were so afraid when they heard the voice of the Lord that they pleaded with Moses and they said, we don't want to hear that again. It's too intense. That's, that's crazy. You go talk to God up on the mountain and then you come and tell us what he said. And, and we'll do what he says. You go to God and then come talk to us and we'll be content with that. And, and Moses said, okay. And God said, okay. And hence, Moses became a mediator between God and men. And what he's saying is that the Messiah, when he comes, that he will also be a mediator. Someone who comes to us on behalf of God and someone who advocates for us to the Father, to the throne of heaven. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this. It says, for there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus. That he was the mediator, not of the old covenant of the law, but of the new covenant in grace. That's what John said in John chapter 1, verse 17. He said, for the law came by Moses. He was the mediator of the covenant of the law. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He was the mediator of the new covenant, you see? And so he would not only be Uh, you know, first of all, a Jew, but he will also be a mediator. And then the third thing is there in verse 18 is that he will be a revealer of truth. And that's what Moses was. Moses was a revealer of who God was, and that's what Jesus was. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And all things that I've heard of my Father, I have declared unto you, and do declare them or show them. So he came to be a representation of the Father, a Jew of the seed of Abraham, the line of David, a mediator of the new covenant, and a revealer to us of who God is. 
And then in verse 19, he gives to us the consequences concerning those that would reject him. He says this. He says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him, or hold him accountable to it. Peter quotes this verse in Acts chapter 3, and he says this, that he will be destroyed from among his people. There is only one sin that a man or a woman will give account for on the day of judgment. When a man or a woman stands before God on judgment day, there will only be one question. It will not be a question of, were you faithful to your spouse, or did you steal that candy bar, or did you use foul language? None of that is even going to come up as you stand before the Lord. There will be one question that will be asked, and it will be this. What did you do with my son? John chapter 16 Verses, I didn't write it down. I think it's 7 and 8. It'll come up on the screen, but it says this. It says that when he, the spirit of truth, comes, it says that he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he says this. Listen carefully. He says, of sin because they believe not in me. You understand? That's the only sin that God is going to ask about. That is that undercuts, it cuts right to the chase, it gets right to the bottom line of everything, is what did you do with my son? And if a person has the son, then he has life. All of his sins are washed away. But if a person hath not the son, then he will not stand in the judgment before God. And so to any that hearken to the words of the Messiah, and they come to Christ, and their sins are forgiven, they will be saved and set free partakers of the new covenant but those that refuse him those that reject those that deny they will be destroyed you cannot stand he is the only solution that god has made for sin and so the prophecy concerning the messiah then in verses 20 and 20 through 22 here he talks about the false prophets and how you'll recognize them he says but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which i have not commanded him to speak or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if you say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? How do we know if this is a false prophet or if this guy is just speaking of his own accord? He says, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet that hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. So in other words, if it doesn't happen, the things that he's prophesied, or if they're so obscure that sometime in the next thousand years, something is going to happen that somewhat resembles what they said, then he says, then that you don't listen to them and, and you're not afraid of them. You cut them off. You name names. You say that's a false prophet. And we find in the scriptures that there's three qualifications, three things whereby you'll know if someone that's speaking to you is speaking to you in the name of the Lord or not. Number one is, is what they sing or, or uh, is what they say, does it line up with the word of God? If it at all contradicts or strays from the word of God, then it's false. You know it's false because God will never lie. Number two, not just does it line up with the word of God, but does it come to pass? <laughs> does it happen, the thing that they say? And then number three, does it, turn you aside to worship another god or does it turn glory away from god and if, if any of those three things then it's a false prophet and he says that person is to be cut off don't sit under their influence don't listen to their teachings don't say well i'll chew the meat and spit out the bones he says no if i haven't sent them if i haven't commanded them then don't listen to it it will lead you astray we get into chapter 19 and chapter 19 uh, I've put as my heading or my theme, or if you're taking notes, I put justice, mercy, and refuge from wrath. Justice, mercy, and refuge from wrath. And so he begins in the first 13 verses here of chapter 19, talking about the cities of refuge. Now, back in chapter 4, Moses mentioned them, and I skipped it. I said, th these three verses talk about the cities of refuge. He's going to come back to it in chapter 19. And so I refer you to chapter 4 to hear... No, just kidding. So we will talk about the cities of refuge here now in chapter uh, 19. Notice with me verse 1. He says, When the Lord thy God 
hath cut off the nations whose land the Lord thy God giveth thee, and you succeedest them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. Thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. You shall prepare thee a way or a road. These cities are to be easily accessible. And divide the coasts of thy land. That means make it an equidistant place, a neutral location where at any time someone can get to these cities quickly. Make sure they're in a strategic location so that everyone has access to one of them. He says into three parts that every slayer may flee thither. And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither, the person who will run to the city. He says that he may live. Whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hated not in time past. And then he gives us a for instance in verse 5. And I'm glad he did that so that we would understand. He says, as when a man goeth into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetcheth a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slippeth from the helve, and lighteth upon his neighbor that he die. He shall flee unto one of those cities and live. In other words, you're in the woods, you're chopping down a tree, the axe head flies off the handle, it, you know, horror movie. Sorry for the sound effects. The guy, <laughs> the guy he drops dead right there in front of you, and, and you, you, he was your friend, he was your neighbor, you didn't do it on purpose, it's manslaughter. It was not premeditated, and now this guy is dead. Well, you've got a problem now. Because the custom in those days, and even amongst the people of God, was that if you killed a member of someone's family, it was the duty of the next of kin in that family to come then and take your life and seek vengeance for what you had done. That's what he goes on to say uh, here in verse 6. He says, Lest the avenger of blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot. He's angry. He's passionate. He's mad. His relative is dead. And overtake him because the way is long and slay him whereas he was not worthy of death inasmuch as he hated him not in time past. Wherefore, I command thee, saying, Thou shalt separate three cities for thee. In other words, God made a way for someone who sinned ignorantly, who killed someone and it wasn't a premeditated act, he made a place for them to go where they would be able to find refuge. They were safe. You ever play tag as a kid? You know, everybody's trying to catch you, but, oh, I'm safe. I'm I'm at the tree or at the spot where... It's neutral. You can't get me here. And that was what the city of refuge was. If someone went to the city, the avenger could not gain access to that person. And and it was very practical. It gave the person who lost their relative a chance to cool down and get the facts. And, And then it gave the person who fled from that place, it gave them a chance to show their sincerity. They went, they had to up and move and go and we find later in the scripture live in that city as long as that person wanted their blood. And so it would show, it would demonstrate that they're, 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 they're telling the truth. They, they weren't angry. They weren't trying to kill, you know, my brother or my father or, you know, whoever. It was an accident, you see. And so it was very strategic. Now, there, there's a practical reason for the existence of those cities, but there is also a spiritual application. The Bible, and those that look at the Bible in this light, see Jesus as he is, as our city of refuge. Because every single one of us is guilty of things. Every single one of us does things, we screw up. And the, and the God of heaven who says that mercy triumphs over judgment, has provided a way for us to find refuge from the avenger of blood. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20, use these words, and I love the language, and it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence. It says, where, it says this, it says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, of his word, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, one, of course, is the oath, the the word, that which God speaks, and then the second is in that it was impossible for God to lie. 
So God has spoken to us. He's given us a promise, and it's impossible for him to lie. And by those two things, it says this. It says that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our city of refuge. He is the place where we flee to in the time of our guilt and the realization of our need for mercy. We flee to Jesus and we find mercy as we come to him. Now, in verses 8 through 10, and you can read those verses on your own, basically Moses says, look, if your borders enlarge, And I want you to notice that word if, because that's the word, that's the key word in that sentence, that phrase. He says, if your borders enlarge and the Lord expands upon the territory that he gives to you, then I want you to erect three more of these cities in the territory that you then expand into. That never happened. Israel never possessed all that God had intended for them to have. They went so far and their peak was in the days of David and of Solomon, and then they stopped. But they never made it to the fullness of the borders that God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 14. And I, that struck me as I was reading that, you know, this week, is, is that how many of us inherit all that God actually has for us? What God has for us is always infinitely more than what we could ever ask or think. And here's the thing with God is that it isn't a blessing biscuit. I I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I think that God is like, he's got this blessing biscuit. And and, and he's waiting for us to do the right trick or to say the right prayer or to, you know, have the right faith. And then he'll say, oh, okay, now you can have it. And And then he pets us, you know, and he says, oh, good boy. You know, no, 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 listen. The blessing of God upon a man or a woman's life, it's not a biscuit, something that God is withholding, that, he, that he's constantly taunting and dangling before us and saying, you can have it if only you. No, no, that's not, that's not it. Here's what it is. Here's what it is. Listen. Is that God is wise, and he's a good father, and he will not give to any one of his kids that which they are going to ruin and mess up. And so he works with us. He seeks to conform us into the image of Christ. He changes us from the inside out. He roots out the covetous, selfish, ambitious, prideful nature that's within us so that when he blesses our lives with that which he's desiring to bless our lives, we don't ruin it because our character is mangled, mutilated, and compromised. Do you understand? It's not a biscuit that God is withholding. It's that if we would yield our lives to his control and give ourselves completely to him and let him do his work within us, then we would experience all that he has for us. They didn't. They came to a certain point and they said, that's enough. But God said, but if your borders do expand, build three more cities. Always let there be that place of refuge. And so the cities of refuge there in verse 10. And then in verse 11, uh, what happens if I killed him on purpose? He says, but if any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him and rise up against him and smite him mortally that he die and he fleeth into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him thence and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. And thine eye shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with thee. Now the analogy breaks down here because in Jesus... It isn't just the things that we did in ignorance. But we flee to him even with those things that we did on purpose. I love Psalms chapter 32, the first couple of verses there where the psalmist declares, he says, Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. He uses three words, sounds redundant, but it's not. He says sin, transgression, and iniquity. Sin is missing the mark. It's when you try to hit the target, but you miss. Transgression is when God draws a line in the sand and says, don't cross it. And we look God in the eye and we step over the line, willfully and on purpose. 
And then iniquity is just uncleanness. It's just our, our nature. It's what we are. And he says all three of those are, are forgiven because of the blood. See, so it isn't just, oh, well, my accidental sins are forgiven by Christ. No, no, no. He forgives all of our sins when we come to him in faith. So he goes on now in verse 14, and I love this verse. It's just one verse, and it's the law of the sacred landmark. He says, you shall not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Now, isn't it amazing? God knows us, doesn't he? That there's going to come a time, God says, that you're going to go out in your field and you're going to say, you know what, if my field was just five feet larger, then I would be able to cut down these couple of extra trees and it would just make such a difference in my view of the hills there of Hebron or it would increase my profit margin by the 1% I need in order to meet my goal. I just need a little more. So I'm just going to move the stake just a couple of feet. You know. But then... A couple years later, you say, well, he didn't notice. And I really could use another five or ten feet. And so you go then, and you move the stake again. You go back another. And God says, don't do that. And so it's just very practical instruction that he gives. You're going to be tempted. God says, I know you. And you're going to be tempted to move the stakes, to move the lines. Don't move the lines. It also has a spiritual and a political application. Politically, it's what we talked about last week. It's what we see happening in our country constantly these days. Is that there were lines, there were borders, there were boundaries that were erected by our forefathers. They came out of the corrupted systems. They saw what it does to nations and societies. And they said, don't violate these principles. These rights that are given to you, not by man and government, but by God. Don't move these lines. But what do we see happening in these days? We see those lines being moved. Little by little, those borders, those boundaries that were erected for our protection are being moved, and we see the result of that thing. God says, don't move those things. And ultimately, the highest application of this verse corresponds with the lines that God has laid out for us in the pages of his scriptures. The concepts, the principles, the rules, and the laws that are a guide constantly to every man, every civilization, every woman and child. And he says, don't move the lines that I have set in places. And yet, what do we see happening in our world constantly and in people's lives all the time is that the lines of God's word are being compromised. They're being moved. He didn't mean that. He didn't mean what he said when he said, don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Don't fornicate. He didn't mean that, he says. You know, we say, don't move the lines that God has erected, that they have set up of old times, the law of the sacred landmark. And then in verses 15 through 21, the rules of justice and will be done. He says, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sins. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. Now, this is a repeat of a verse we heard in our study last week. He repeats himself. He says, it is not to be at the mouth of one person that a person is convicted or condemned. There must be two or three witnesses that everything be established so that there's justice, so that there's no corruption, no crookedness, no doubt. Practical. It's wise. He goes on, he says, if a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that is wrong, then both men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness, in other words, he lying. He, the, the crime didn't happen. He just doesn't like the guy and he's trying to do him in and get him in jail or get him killed or something like that. It, it, it's a false witness and he has testified falsely against his brother. Verse 19, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put away the evil from among you. In other words, if, if you're a false witness and you bring an accusation against someone because you want to dog them, and it be found out that it's a false witness, 
then the penalty to you, the liar, is that you serve the sentence that you were trying to have them serve. Doesn't that make you smile? <laughs> because it just makes sense. <laughs> you, know, you, you read it and you go, yeah, that, that, that's the way it should be. You know, that just is wise. And he says, and those which remain then, here's the effect that it'll have, shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, there is to be perfect equity and perfect justice in your judicial system and dealings. So there's not to be one witness. The false witness is to serve the sentence that he's seeking to have imposed upon the person he's speaking against. And the sentences are to be absolutely fair and absolutely just and equivocal as, 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 as much as is possible for you to have. That is to be the way that you're to mete out justice when you come into the land. However, there is also a spiritual interpretation and application for the Christian as we look at these things and understand what God is saying. As I read that last verse there, verse 21, perhaps in your mind flashed the words of Jesus that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Jesus said these words. He said, you have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, quoting that verse in Deuteronomy. But I say unto you that you shall resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek Turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. You say, well, wait a minute. If God is a God of justice and his word cannot be violated or changed, then isn't Jesus contradicting what was spoken by the Father, by the Spirit in the Old Testament? Isn't there a contradiction that's being spoken here? No, no, no. Listen, it's not a contradiction that Jesus is giving. It's counsel. What Jesus is saying to you and me as the church, as those that believe in Christ in this age of grace, what he's saying to you and me is that it is not in your benefit to ask for justice. It is not in your best interest in losing an eye to go after the person's eye. But rather, it's in your best interest as a Christian under the new covenant to seek after mercy and not justice. You say, well, how so? And how does that flesh out? How does it work? Here's how it works. Listen. When Jesus Christ stood before Pontius Pilate, just before his crucifixion and his death, the Bible tells us that there were many false witnesses that came and gave testimony against Christ of things that were worthy of death. They accused him of blasphemy, which before God would obtain the sentence of death and before the Jews, their law was that they would die by stoning if they blasphemed. So the accusation carried the penalty of death. He's blasphemed. Also, treason. He claims to be a king, he said to Pilate. He magnifies and exalts himself above Caesar. The penalty of that in the Roman court would be death, execution, that he would die. And so these witnesses, they came to Pilate and they gave these false accusations. These false witnesses that carried with them the penalty of death because they were jealous of Jesus and they wanted him dead. So Pilate, doing what he had to do, what he was required to do, he actually did what Moses said he's to do. He made diligent inquisition. He questioned Jesus concerning the claims that the people were making. He came back to the people and he said, listen, I've asked of him, I've questioned him, and, and I find no fault. He, he's innocent of these things. He, he didn't claim to be God or, or, or do anything at least worthy of death. He's not exalting himself above Caesar. You should let him go. But they demanded not that he be released, but that he be crucified. 
that the sentence be carried out. And Pilate said, no, I have examined him. I will scourge him and then I will let him go. And then the people grabbed Pilate by the back of the neck and they said, look, if you let this man live, you're no friend of Caesar's and you know the kind of riot and ruckus that we can rise in the city. And so Pilate said, look, you want me to give you Barabbas, this convicted felon, this murderer, this thief, this man Barabbas that's caused such problems for you and for our city? Or do you want me to release to you Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild? You, you make the choice. And with one voice, with one accord, they said, Barabbas. Now, his name was no coincidence. The name Barabbas means Bar Abba. It means son of, Bar is son of, and Abbas is a father. So he was the son of a father. It's not a coincidence. The son of a father was released in exchange for the innocent son of God. The guilty son of men was released in exchange for the innocent son of God. There was an exchange that took place. And what the Bible teaches us is that on the accusing side of that exchange, represented there was every man, woman, and child that ever lived is that though there was a crowd of people that were speaking the words, they were speaking on behalf of every man, woman, and child that ever lived. That's why in Isaiah chapter 53, it says that the Lord did esteem him, or we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And it says that the Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all. In other words, that day when they accused Jesus, they were speaking for all of humanity. And here's what happened in the courtroom of heaven is that all of mankind that day became guilty of false accusation that carried a sentence of death you understand all of mankind every one of us that day accused a man falsely in a situation where the sentence was death what's the penalty for someone who gives false accusation in a situation where the penalty is death the accuser serves the sentence. What was the sentence? The sentence was the wrath of God, death, and eternal separation. That's what the sin of humanity cost. That's what Jesus paid for. That was the sentence that Jesus served in going to the cross. And therefore, that is the penalty for those that have done it, including all of us. You say, wait a minute. That's not fair. I wasn't there. I was not there. I was not one of the people that said, crucify him. It isn't fair because I didn't know. I wasn't even born for a couple of thousand years. It wasn't premeditated. How could, you, how could I be accused of this? It doesn't matter. The penalty is death. And you and I fall under the bracket of the accused. Well, what can I do? If death is what is, is meted out to me, if that's the sentence, if that's what I owe, what do I do? What do I do? Here's what you do. You ready? You go to the city of refuge. You flee to Jesus Christ. You go to him. And when you go to Jesus, here's what happens. Here's what happens. And, and, and the answer for how you are then set free, because God is just. He cannot... Let you off the hook if you are guilty. Unless something happens, how is he going to do it? Look again with me at verse 15. Notice this, this verse. It's great. It's awesome. It's the answer. Here it is. Listen. He says, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of Three witnesses shall the matter be established. Here's the answer. Listen, here's what happens. The scene is the courtroom of heaven. The father is seated behind the bench. You are in the defendant's stand. And the prosecution rises up. And the prosecution says, I'm calling my first witness to the stand. And he calls the first accuser in this trial. Do you know who it is? It's Satan. The accuser of our brethren, the Bible calls him. 
He's the one that watches us and keeps a record of what we do. He's the tattletale of heaven, the Bible teaches. And he keeps a record of all of it. And so the first witness comes and Satan says, I saw them deny Christ with their life. They fall under the curse of Adam's sin. And beyond that, I have a list of everything that they've ever done that puts them under my jurisdiction and my condemnation. His testimony is heard, it's recorded, it's received. He steps down. And then the prosecution calls its second witness. It calls my second witness to the stand. The second person, you know who it is? It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 45 says this. Jesus said it himself. He said, think not that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. And so the prosecution calls Moses to the witness stand. And Moses gets into the stand. And the judge speaks to him and says, read the chronicle, read the writing. And he reads the law that Satan gave accusation against. And as he reads the law, the witness is observed. The witness is recorded in the mouth of two witnesses. Can you believe that Moses is a witness? condemnation that's what paul said that the law condemns the letter kills and in that testimony that's given satan the accuser and moses the lawgiver in the mouth of two witnesses the testimony is accepted and the person who is self-represented meaning they are apart from christ that person is then told by the father bring the paperwork to me and the accusation is handed to you. The copy of the law is handed to you and you bring it before the Father and the testimony is sealed. And guess what your destiny is? You're guilty. There's no hope. There's no help. There's nothing you can do. There's no more answer. There's no more solution. This court is just and the gavel falls and the judgment is meted out. But it doesn't have to end that way. It doesn't have to end that way. Because if you've gone to the city of refuge, if you are a child of God, if you belong to Jesus Christ, it's a totally different situation. Satan still gives his testimony. He still accuses you just the same before the Father. But when the prosecution calls Moses to the stand, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is your advocate, your defense attorney. And he stands up and he says, objection, your honor. I have something to read. And he opens to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And he reads this. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In other words, for the believer in Jesus Christ, the person has fled to him as their refuge and their hope. They are no longer under the jurisdiction of the law, meaning the testimony of Moses is canceled out. And so the father says to his son, Jesus Christ, Bring me the documents. And the accusation of Satan and the law of Moses is taken in the hands of Christ to the judgment seat of the Father. And as he receives the papers, he looks at them and he says, how did these get covered with all this blood? And as he looks at the bloodied hands of Jesus Christ, he says, this testimony does not stand. And you and I are acquitted. Those that have believed in Jesus Christ are forgiven and set free. But there's a catch. There's a catch. Matthew chapter 6, verse somewhere. You look it up. It'll come up on the screen. Jesus said this. He says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses... Neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Here's the point. Here's the counsel. Mercy. 
not justice. For the child of God, for the New Testament Christian, it is not in our interest to ask for justice, but to take the provision of mercy that's been afforded us by Jesus Christ. Well, we come to the end of another study that is saturated with the testimony of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of this study, I told you that the key to understanding these things is the knowledge of Jesus Christ within our lives. And so we see as we look at these scriptures, you can, or the worship team rather, can come forward at this time. But what we see is that he is the Lord that holds our lives within our hands, his hands. There's no need for us to seek out other means of counsel or inspiration or anything else but that we can come to Jesus Christ and he is the Lord and the leader of our lives. We find that he is that prophet, the one that reveals the Father to us, the one that mediates between God and men, and the one that speaks to us the truth of God and who he is. We find that Jesus is our refuge, the place that we flee in times of trouble, and that he is the one who has brought us out of the condemnation of the law through his blood, and under the banner of the grace of God. Father, we just thank you tonight for this word. We pray that you would open our understanding to apply it to our lives yet more and more. Would you take and remind us throughout the rest of this week of these things that you are to us, and may our relationship with you grow yet stronger and stronger day by day. We thank you for this precious revelation We ask you to seal it within our hearts until your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.